you are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gortman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And we are doing another one of our fantastic live tapings of Talking Machines. And our guest this week is Sela Novo? Nevo? I'm sorry, am I pronouncing that correctly? Nevo, it's a weird name. That's all right. Sela, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. I really appreciate it. As you know, we ask everyone the same question first. How did you get where you are? You're with Google AI now, right? Yes, uh, we're now called Google Research, but uh, we've changed a couple of times. So So tell us about your your industrial and academic journey to that point. You've you've been so many amazing places. Yeah, so, so I think I started on my path early. I've always been a bit of a math nerd, but I think the beginning of the journey that led me to where I am today was at age 13 when I find myself volunteering for the first time. Uh, This wasn't intentional. I was a kind of a brat. I didn't actually look for volunteering opportunities, but I found myself one. I I had the chance to to chat with a Holocaust survivor and kind of keeping her company and helping with basic tasks. And that first volunteering experience kind of helped me realize that this was kind of the first time of my life that I had done actually something that mattered to someone. Uh, And that was kind of a pretty pretty deep realization for a 13-year-old. And then I spent the next 10 years kind of with two major themes in my life, kind of one half spent on mathematics and computer science, and the other half spent volunteering with youth at risk and refugees and people with autism. But for a while, that was kind of a bit of a, a question in my mind, because I knew that at some point I'd need to choose what direction I want to take my career. And at the time, I thought that work that actually helps people necessarily looks like the volunteering that I've already done. And I didn't want to give that up, but I also didn't want to give up the beauty of statistics and algebra and facing genuinely challenging intellectual challenges. But eventually, perhaps belatedly, I realized that actually I could do an enormous amount of positive impact by using my professional skills to to help people at scale. So when I realized that, I started searching for the highest impact career I could find, try to talk to as many NGOs and startups and corporations that I could find and see what, what opportunities they have. So one of the organizations I talked to was Google and ask them what social impact projects they have. And I bet a bunch of managers that say they didn't have really any interesting social impact opportunities. But then I met uh, Galle Dan, who's like a, he was a great uh, machine learning professor and a great engineer, and he was my first manager. And to this day, he continues to be one of my greatest mentors. And he, had, he was leading a general machine learning team at Google. And he said, well, we don't really have anything that relates to social impact, but there's this one project that I'm not sure... I don't know if we even started, so there's no point in talking about it. And and this was the p- point for which I I came to talk to him about. So I was like, there's no point talking about anything else. Let's let's talk about about what that option is. So he opened up some docs and he showed me this uh, broad survey that Google's crisis response team did of different interventions. And what they did is, is they took about 60 interventions that relate to natural disasters and car accidents and violence and terror attacks and tried to estimate different interventions that Google could do. And what's the life-saving potential of those different interventions? Or as kind of the more technical term, how many qualies, which is short for quality-adjusted life years, those interventions would save. And I'm a bit of a nerd, uh, and I have these uh, quality estimates myself. I did those for all my startup ideas, so I knew kind of what I was looking at, and I was just blown away by, by what was there. And, and the, top, the top intervention there was uh, improving flood forecasting. It was just incredibly clear that that was a much better idea than the things that I've been thinking of myself. So I fell in love with the project. And then later that same day, I met with Yossi Matias, who's the head of Google Israel and an engineering VP at Google. And I told him, he asked me if I wanted to join. And I said, I will join if and only if he lets me open this project. And luckily he said yes. So that's how I got to lead Google's flood forecasting initiative. I got so many questions about about that story. And um, the first one that occurs though is, 
I do. I just love the narrative of the volunteering and the maths coming together, and and realizing that what you're good at technically can actually be um, directed to what you see you want to do in your life, uh, and just an amazing opportunity at Google. But I think that there's so many people out there who are in the same position, perhaps not as convinced by it as you, perhaps getting some of these other options. Could you also maybe talk us through some of the opportunities you had to do that? I mean, before Google and things you tried and things that worked, perhaps things that didn't work out, because I'm sure people would be super interested to hear about that as well. Yeah, so there's actually, I think, I think the path that led me to this kind of work is is mainly trying to compare different projects. So it's actually, I haven't done that many different projects, or at least not ones that I can talk about on the podcast. But what I did, and I think more people should do, is before they spend a year or two in the actual research and the actual interesting stuff, is kind of saying, okay, let's say I succeeded in this project. What would be the impact? How would that impact people's lives? Is that a plausible, meaningful result? And therefore, kind of, I think that can really help you direct towards interesting projects. But there's a challenge, I think a particular challenge for something very technical, isn't there? There's sort of, there's a stage where you don't have that clarity of vision to know. I mean, when I speak to PhD students or prospective PhD students, they want to be in the field, they want to contribute and do things, but they perhaps can't see so far, so far ahead as you're talking about to what the sort of impact will be on things in the world they're passionate about. And you described this period where you felt that somehow these two parts of your life were in parallel, that they were two things you did. You were fascinated by math stuff, but you were driven by volunteering. And I guess that that period's particularly interesting. I mean, what what stage was it when you realized that these things can come together, that you even saw it was plausible to look a year ahead and say? Actually, first of all, I think it's worth mentioning that I think there's a huge difference between kind of more uh, application-oriented work and kind of more theory-oriented work, right? So there's the basic science part, which is incredibly important. And I think a lot of people in academia are doing a lot to, to advance that. And when you're doing that kind of work, it really is sometimes hard to see how that directly leads to, to impact, but that doesn't make it necessarily less important. And then there's the more applied uh, aspect of things where you're taking existing, existing progress and just applying it to a specific field that hasn't been using it yet. Uh, and there it's much easier to... Uh, at least have the confidence that what you're doing has direct impact. So first, I think it's worth mentioning that the work that I do is really at the kind of uh, exploit side of the explore-exploit uh, spectrum that you mention sometimes. And, and so, so and that makes it easier to at least know what the impact is going to be. But you've empowered one of the things. I, I think I had a similar stage, although not as nicely driven as yours in my early career where I knew I kind of wanted to do stuff. I think what happened to me, it was almost the other way around. I wanted to have impact and build things. And then as I was trying to build them, I kept on thinking, well, wait, this doesn't work. Oh, damn, need to get more into the math. Need, need, need more math to deliver the thing. And then my early career actually ended up being more and more about the, the theory and the algorithms because I just realized the stuff I wanted to do just wasn't possible. And then it kind of took me a while to get back to being able to deploy in that area, which is sort of is interestingly different because you were sort of out there doing that stuff already, but it was just in parallel you were doing the the tech stuff. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that made the area of flood forecasting more open to directly using tools that already exist 
is the fact that it's incredibly neglected. So one of the interesting aspects of floods is that they're incredibly impactful. Uh, hundreds of millions of people every year are affected by floods, and they cause uh, between thousands and tens of thousands of fatalities. But actually, rich countries have kind of got a hold of them, at least in terms of the human costs. So in terms of fatalities, really, we do have solutions. But many, many lower-income countries just don't have the capacity to be able to support either the infrastructure they need or the forecasting systems that are required to be able to warn people effectively. So let's, let's step back and sort of just say from the... So what is a flood forecasting system? As you're saying, you know, floods can clearly be devastating. But what exactly is the scale of what you're talking about when, when Google does flood forecasting systems? <laughs> what do they look like? Yeah, so we try to really provide everything that people need end-to-end for free. So when I actually, when I just started working on this project, uh, my idea was, let's just do one particular component. Let's maybe do what's called a rainfall runoff model, where uh, you try to convert precipitation forecasts and measurements into uh, water levels inside a river, for example. And let's let the, the rest of the ecosystem take care of everything else. So that's like you take knowledge of the terrain, you combine it with the rainfall forecasts. Are you using historical data or is this mechanistic modeling uh, to try and make these forecasts? So we use a combination of physics-based models and machine learning models. And I can, I can dive into, we, we have several different models, each of them structured a bit differently, uh, but I can dive into those. But before I dive into each of the models, just to say, originally we wanted to do only kind of one component, only the machine learning modeling side, and let the rest of the ecosystem do the rest. But when we just started, it was really important for me to measure our impact as we move forward, uh, to try and understand whether what we're doing is working, whether it actually helps people. Uh, so I got in touch with uh, Lohini Panda, who's a development economist originally at Harvard, now at Yale. And I asked her, can we do an impact evaluation together so we can check if what we're doing is actually valuable? And she asked, okay, what are you planning to do? And I gave an explanation. And she said, you know, we don't, she was more polite than this, but what she really meant to say was, uh, you know, we don't need to, we don't need to do the impact evaluation. You're going to have no impact. <laughs> yeah, here's your evaluation, zero. <laughs> Exactly. And I, and I asked why, because uh, as you know, I'm, I was very enthusiastic about this project. And she said, look, if you're only going to do one component of the system, the problem in many low-income countries is that every, every link in the chain is broken, right? There's problems every step of the way. And so if that's all you're going to do, you're going to have very nice models and nothing's going to happen on the ground. So that has led us to change our strategy quite a bit. And today we try to do everything end-to-end. So sorry, that was a, a long uh, way of getting back to your question of why we actually do quite a lot of different things at the same time. So this is really fascinating in terms of experience with DSA because I, I love that end-to-end vision. And I think the main thing you often see on the ground is it's, it's almost the infrastructure to enabling end-to-end to come out, which is missing. So when you do end-to-end, are you providing that infrastructure or do you build the infrastructure and each component? And how much do you expose that to the people that work with so that you can get some contribution? That seems like a really interesting challenge. Yeah. So what we're trying to build is first, we want to have something that actually works end to end. So not just the infrastructure for others to build, but really a full end system that starts with taking inputs like precipitation data and gauge measurements on the ground and elevation maps and things like that and produce from that forecasts two or three days into the future of what will happen inside a river, for example. 
And then from that, we also model how the water will behave across the floodplain, which you use a separate model for, so that we can have spatially accurate and actionable alerts. So we can tell people your neighborhood or your village is going to be affected and it's going to be, the water is going to be one meter high. So you will need to evacuate. Then we send out that information through a combination of strategies, both using Google's products like Google Search, Maps, and Android notifications so that people receive them as quickly as possible, as well as sending them directly to governments so they can support relief and mitigation efforts. And finally, we also collaborate with and fund both local and international NGOs so that they can provide that information to people who don't have access to the internet. That's just, that is, that's end to end. That's like, you know, <laughs> that's the real deal. But, but, but just to mention, uh, we do also put all of our alerts, uh, we make them all publicly available. And we are also publishing our models so that other people can do similar things and continue to push this field forward even beyond what we're doing. You must have had to sort of deal with a lot of things that you didn't expect to come out. Like an immediate thought in, in my head is, oh, okay, now you're sending text alerts and there's going to be issues around how you do that potentially with whatever the local government wants you to do and coordination like that. I think we could do an entire series of talking machines probably on each of those that would want to come up. So, But maybe maybe the best way of trying to address those is to turn a, a sort of very broad question to you. What has been the most challenging thing you've encountered when you're trying to pull this whole thing together? Yeah, so there definitely are a lot of challenges. And like you said, there definitely are a lot of surprises. Part of this is understanding what people actually need, uh, which is very different from our preconceptions of what people need. I think like all machine learning researchers, I imagine this project as, oh, let's just take the data and then do some machine learning modeling and everything will work out fine. You will consume my machine learning algorithm to save your life and you will do it on my terms. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, then, and then every step of the way, you realize that the machine learning model is only just a small component of everything that needs to be done, whether that's getting access to the data. In many countries, the actual measurements of what's going on is actually not only not publicly available, but considered secret a state secret. Uh, so getting access to that data is not trivial. But then also trying to make sure that you tell people what they want to know. So two examples of this is we originally told people whether or not the area they are in will be flooded. And from my point of view, that sounded like a very informative thing to say. But then we flew out to Bihar in India, where we have many operational systems during monsoon season. And we found areas where we are alerting that the things are going to be flooding but all we found there are kids playing around in the puddles that have formed, which clearly is, you know, there's a, there's a very big distinction between what we're telling them. You created a play area notification <laughs> system. <laughs> exactly. Um, and what we found out talking to people is that in many regions uh, that we're focusing on, the places where the most vulnerable populations are, where the majority of global fatalities are, people will not evacuate until they know that the water will reach waist height. So if it only reaches knee height, they're going to go on with their day. What this means is, and people have told us this directly, if they don't know what the height is going to be, they're not going to evacuate. And what they're going to do is they're going to wait until it reaches waist height, and then they're going to tr try to evacuate, which is, of course, incredibly dangerous. So that really changed our priorities, for example, to provide depth information in addition to flood extent. I mean, that's... A I really love that example because it's ex exactly the type of thing. Of course, once you say it, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, makes sense. But it's so hard to imagine 
if if you don't put yourself in people's situation, that that's the way it's going to be. If if you're not someone who's living with daily floods because you're near a river and how you react to those floods, you can't really conceive of that. And it's only when you see how people live and how they react. Like, oh, of course. We have, a, I think, a really interesting question from Andrew. Should, should we go to that? Because um, it relates to something that I wanted to address now, Catherine. Or, uh... Sure. Let's try, to, let's try to bamf it in. <laughs> Andrew, you have a fantastic question about end-to-end modeling. Yes. I'm really curious about for this whole end-to-end system, you mentioned some of it's physics-based and some of it is machine learning-based. How do you make decisions around which pieces are physics-based and which you inject machine learning into the system? Thanks so much, Andrew. I think that's a great question. Yeah. That's why I wanted to bring in because I'm like, that's what I wanted to ask next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's a wonderful question. And I think in many ways, this is, I think, perhaps the most interesting part of the project. So maybe I should start with why we even need physics, uh, uh, physics-based components in our system. You know, the, the challenge here is that in many senses, we don't have enough data to take a fully data-driven exp- approach, right? We... Uh, for every, for example, region that we want to model, uh, we sometimes only have several years of uh, measurements. And since temporally close measurements are, you know, kind of self are correlated, uh, that means that meaningfully we have even less. So we we kind of need the physical modeling to insert some structure to be able to generalize for what we're seeing. But the problem with uh, physical based models or mechanistic models is that they really don't learn, or they are very limited in their ability to learn from past information. And we would really want some of that flexibility. So what we try to do is we try to separate out what do we really know? What does the physics genuinely tell us versus what are the parts that we really will have to learn from the data? And what we really know is sometimes tricky to really tease out. So I'll give maybe a classic example of this. You know, there's there's laws like conservation of mass, right? If there's water, it has to go somewhere. And so one could want to do something like, let's add a constraint where we kind of have to make sure that no water disappears beyond the kind of sources and sinks that we explicitly define, right? So precipitation brings water in, uh, maybe absorption, t- absorption takes water out. But other than that, we would expect there to be, you know, to all, all of the water to be accounted for. But in reality, because we have measurements that are not, not always accurate, and because our model is doing other weird stuff that we don't understand, we don't necessarily genuinely want to enforce this conservation of mass. So really what we'd want to do is we kind of want to more softly enforce a lot of these rules. So I think a lot of the, a lot of the process here is really trying to understand what do we really know, what assumptions are justified, and trying to incorporate those while trying to learn the rest. Can you pull that together across different rivers and locations? Is, is the possibility, does the physics help with transfer learning here? Yeah, so that's, a, that's an excellent question. So actually in hydrology... It's been kind of common knowledge that you can't generalize. You have to fit a different model. When we're talking about physics-based models, you can't have a single model do multiple, multiple rivers. And actually here, we've actually used the machine learning models to help us have a single model to apply to multiple locations at the same time. Is that because you can, so instinctively, because all machine learners will do this, I'm now trying to solve the problem you've already solved in the way that I would solve it? <laughs> That's like the question you get is when you give this talk. Here's how I would have solved it. Why didn't you do it like that? So this is me doing that question. One way I can imagine doing that is you build machine learning models that help parameterize 
the physical model. Did you go that route or did you go another route? So actually, we originally wanted to go that route, route exactly. So we wanted, we originally implement, we did kind of an, an extreme unfolding where we just implemented the full hydrologic model uh, within TensorFlow. And we were like, this, we'll just use this to backpropagate on the parameters and that'll be great. Uh, that worked quite terribly. There were several problems with this. So one is, it was very, very hard to find an actual good global minima. We would constantly, constantly kind of find ourselves in really terrible local minima. And secondly, we found out that we actually think that the models that we have currently don't, even though they're called physics-based models or sometimes conceptual models, we don't think they model the physics very well. They model the physics very well in some aspects. Hydraulic models tend to, to perform very well, but the rainfall runoff models are, do a really bad job, generally speaking. And so we ended up going specifically in this component, we ended up going on a full machine learning-based approach. And what we found, and this is work that's done in collaboration with Sepp Hochreiter and uh, Gray Neering and Frederick Kratzert, we found that actually a, a very simple LSTM when trained on hundreds of different basins, will perform substantially better than all existing or at least all benchmarked physics-based models, including ones that people have been spending millions and millions of dollars every year uh, to try and calibrate to basins. So we were actually, in, in that context, we were quite surprised by how much pure machine learning models uh, do well. That's an amazing result. So and what are the type of inputs? Do you have to deal with vegetation as well with these runoff models, or is it just the shape of the landscape? There's the, presumably something about the permeability of the soil and these sort of things. Is, is that all being taken into account here? Yeah, so a perfect model at least would take into account quite a wide range of things, whether that's uh, uh, precipitation, temperature, soil type, soil moisture, and, and a wide range of okay, solar radiation, things like that. But actually even just taking in uh, things like precipitation, solar radiation, and some very basic information about the soil, we can already get pretty good results. And the fact that we can do this with few inputs is very important when you try to scale things up globally, because a lot of places don't have a lot of measurements. Yeah, yeah, of course. What sort of scale of data is that? Because the instinct, you know, the sort of thing that I will tell people when they ask me about ML is, oh yeah, it's great if you've got, you know, you could fit one of those if you've got a load of data. But, but my instinct is you don't have millions of, effectively independent data points for these so you're fitting this lstm to what i would guess is a relatively small data set size uh compared to what people are using in language for example yeah so definitely on on google scale we're we're kind of the, in the little kiddies pool so but part of what we're doing is training our models across many different locations so indeed if i were to train it only for a specific river I would genuinely not have enough data to have really good uh, results. But the fact that the kind of the flexibility of uh, modern ML architectures allow us to learn and actually apply transfer learning from multiple locations. A lot of what we're working on right now, and this is still a work in progress, is on models that actually combine both kind of universal components so that we can learn from across the different locations, as well as per site components so that we can also optimize the model uh, for each location. That presumably then would give you the ability for a new location where you had no data to sort of make less certain predictions initially, but then as you got data coming in to refine it, that's a really nice approach. Exactly. And that's a that's a that's actually a very, very important problem. So one of the core problems in hydrology is, are, is what's called prediction in, in ungaged basins. 
So what do we do when we don't have measurements? And actually, the same result that I was mentioning before, where we showed that this model is substantially better than classic models, we've actually also shown that when our model is tested against locations that it has never seen before, so we haven't even given it any measurements from the past from that location. So in that sense, it's like an ungaged location. It's as if we didn't have measurements there. Even under those circumstances, it performs better than classic models when they are trained specifically for that location and based on its historical data. So there are really, I think, a lot of new exciting results in this area. And I think there's a lot of potential for, for machine learning to continue and improve things in the field of hydrology. Can I take a slight change of track? Track, tack. Could be a track, tack. And... Uh... Ask a little bit about, because as you're describing this, I'm thinking about a few different sort of practical things, um, like how big your team is, how you swap in and out these models, how you manage to collaborate with it, because you built this end-to-end system. And I think anyone who's had to do something like this, you know, you're effectively maintaining a production system while trying to innovate it. And that's damn hard. What you'll find is people can build a production system that is stable and really difficult to change because anyone who comes along and makes an adjustment in one point, the whole code bay breaks. Or you can build very flexible systems that aren't good for production. But from your description so far, you're having to maintain a code base that is production ready and capable of assimilating these new innovations. And I was curious if you could say something about those challenges. Sure. That, so that's definitely definitely a challenge. So first of all, it's worth mentioning, we have several teams across Google that are all contributing to this effort. Uh, so we have actually several teams working on things that we use as inputs to our models. So for example, Google generates its own elevation maps. So that, that's actually done in uh, Google Geo. And they're producing one meter resolution elevation maps, and they can do this anywhere in the world, uh, which is really, really helpful for our efforts. That then goes to my team, which is responsible for the modeling, both the physics-based modeling and the machine learning modeling of the hydrology itself. And then we send that information to uh, the crisis response team that is responsible for distributing that information to everyone, whether that's uh, individuals or governments. So first of all, we indeed have several teams working on several of these different efforts. Uh, But it is true that all of these teams are supporting production systems while innovating at the same time. Uh, And that is definitely a huge challenge. Just next week, this might already be in the past when this episode comes out, but the uh, monsoon is officially beginning in South South Asia, which means that we're launching our new systems for this year uh, because we're currently focused in South Asia. And there's a lot of a lot of arguments between uh, the people who are currently responsible for production and the people who are doing more of the research side of things, specifically because I think the researchers have broken our production system or what will be our production system, I think about three times this week. So we have now clarified that there is no more uh, submitting of code until until we've successfully launched and our system is stable. Let's explore people, more uh, <laughs> deliver. Yeah, um, Exactly, exactly. I th- it's such a hard... I, th- I think p- when someone's worked out a strategy which helps people to crack that challenge, I mean, because what you're describing, I think, is is just being played out everywhere. And it's just really difficult to fix because, of course, the researchers want to squeeze the best, very best out of what they're doing. But then it has these downstream effects, I guess, a bit like a flood does um, in terms of the wave of edits that now the production team have to uh, deal with. 
Yeah. So I'd love to sort of talk about that a little bit more. You you have these two amazing, you had your your passion and your skill set that you were then able to bring together in this amazing way. But then you you talked about the anecdote where you're trying to actually get the thing that you're creating to have impact. And you talk to someone and they say, well, I can tell you very easily, it's not going to have any impact. So tell me, tell me a little bit more. I guess my question is, what advice would you give to other researchers or people in this field who are who want to have impact who are especially interested in this area of you know research for good what sort of other skill sets did you find that you didn't know that you needed in order to actually make that end-to-end chain work how did you get from question to impact yeah i think that's a that's an excellent question and that's a hard question uh, i don't think there's an there's an easy answer here i think i think there are several things that help one is, first of all, really caring about the concrete impact you will have on the ground. And caring means uh, measuring, caring means consulting with people, not trying to tell yourself the story of how the work that I'm doing can be given a, a social good twist, and therefore, you know, I'm, I'm pleased, right? It's, it's trying to make sure what is, what is my research doing, how does it affect people, and does it work? I think that's, first of all, an important aspect of that. The second, I think, is also external review, right? So for example, when we started this project, the reason I reached out to originally the Evidence for Policy Design Center at Harvard, and now, now the Economic Growth Center at Yale, is because you know, my job is to get people excited about this project, right? My managers, my, uh, my engineers. It's really healthy to have someone else take a look and say, is this working or not, right? It's, I shouldn't be the person who, the arbiter of that. So I think that's also incredibly important. Like ask, making sure that other people can measure what you're doing, being open, being transparent. And then maybe lastly is, I think, trying to work, I mentioned this earlier, trying to work on things that are more neglected. I think the world has a lot of trendy social good things, and those are incredibly, incredibly important. But you can find incredible opportunities having an outsized impact if you try to understand, wait, where are our blind spots? Uh, where does money not tend to go? Where does people compassion not tend to go? Uh, if people are far away, uh, that can be a huge uh, blocker for, for a lot of people's interest. So I think those are also incredible, incredible opportunities for doing a lot of good. It's so fascinating to just think about the the like impact of like of a person's context who is literally far away from you, right? Like how do you how do you even make that leap? I just thought that was an amazing set of different advices. I, I particularly think people are want to fall into this social good twist trap which i think is you know i understand it i understand why people want to do it but i think it's particularly damaging because it gives everyone the flavor of something nice is happening whereas the reality is perhaps it isn't and perhaps with just a little bit more thought and the external review point a little bit more listening the same amount of effort could be delivered towards something that is game-changing, as you said, and, and the other point about neglected areas. Uh, I just think it, it's not the things... Typically, if something is in the headlines, people are paying attention to it. So as you say, it's the things that aren't in the headlines where there's the sort of maximum return for effort available, I think. Uh, really, really good advice. 
So, Sela, you mentioned this idea of, like, making sure that you avoid the for good twist and, like, actually caring about something. And I think that that is, is so crucial. How do you talk other people, other researchers, other practitioners in the field into moving beyond the, you know, the twist for your drink into, the, like, actually drinking from the fire hose? I think that's a great question. I think machine learning is quite an exceptional field in that it gives you a tool set that can have an impact in an extremely wide range of fields. And this means that if you're an ML researcher, you have the rare opportunity to choose how you want to impact the world and be effective at it. And there's really a wide range of ways to improve the world from basic science to humanitarian aid to revolutionary technological innovation to improving the safety of machine learning systems. And the list goes on. But that doesn't mean that all paths are equal. So I think investing the time to search for ways you can make a genuine difference with your work is just incredibly important in general and in machine learning in particular. It's a great point that when you think, certainly if you're heading off in a career in, in these directions, a small amount of time actually exploring which one is the right one is going to pay off big time later. Definitely. In journalism, there's this concept of carpet bagging, where there's something there's something wrong, there's news to cover, and everybody packs up their carpet bags and rushes there and covers the news until it's not exciting anymore. And then you pack up your bag again and you leave. And the people who always win, you know, the, the Pulitzers and the DuPonts and the things like that are the local journalists who have been there for a long time and have covered that whole expanse. But oftentimes, it takes a person moving there because they're interested in that idea. And as someone who has brought their ML skills to a bunch of areas, you know, collaborating with government officials and other teams across Google and the locals, right? You know, what is the definition between a puddle and actually like actionable floodwaters that you should leave your home for? What's your advice for those who are who are dedicated to for good, but then find themselves needing to collaborate with people whose skill sets do not match with their own? I don't know. I guess the question is like, how do you learn to speak somebody else's language? Or how have you learned to speak other people's languages? Yeah, that's that's a huge challenge. Uh, maybe in this context, it's worth saying. So when I started working on uh, flood forecasting, I knew nothing about hydrology or water management or even rivers. I was surprised to find out that rivers actually move from side to side. I come from a very dry country. It turns out that rivers uh, move. And I didn't know even basic things. And so learning kind of to speak across fields is can be really challenging. But I think if you work together side by side, at least virtually, if not physically these days, you can really, you, you kind of reach a water, watershed moment where eventually you notice that you're actually trying to say the exact same things, that actually a lot of the concepts that exist in machine learning exist in the different scientific fields, uh, but just you've been giving them different names. And when that click happens, uh, you can collaborate much, much more effectively. So maybe my, my best advice in that context is to is to keep working. And when communication is difficult because someone has a different professional perspective, that's a reason to intensify your collaboration or at least how much communication you have rather than back away. I think that's a great insight. And, and I think just taking it back to the, the Catherine's language analogy, it's a little bit like if you listen carefully enough to what they're saying, you start realizing how their language maps onto yours. And I think that there's another aspect to it that the more of these types of projects you do, the better you get at that skill. There's a sort of transfer learning skill in there yourself. The more you start realizing, oh, machine learning isn't unique. That you know, there are things that we think about that other people think about. And 
I should spend time and attention listening to what they call them so that I can map my skills onto their skills. So our, our listener question on this episode, as we, we've already had one, but we have Andrew asking us another fantastic question. Andrew, I believe that your question is around um, being able to use this uh, this models for uh, larger questions around hydrology. Um, what is your question? Unfold it for us. Sure. So earlier in the podcast, we talked about how these ML models, these end-to-end systems, are actually shown to be maybe more effective than the more traditional models for these ungauged basins or places they've never even seen data before. Um, so I'm curious about what the implications are for the field now of hydrology. It seems like ML maybe is just the way to go, like it's just the best. Um, is there a way for this research to sort of inform hydrology for us to see what's missing in those models? Um, or is the future just ML? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I think the field of hydrology is huge. So the answer to that question really depends on what specific question you're trying to ask within the field of hydrology. So I'll give just two examples. I think that in rainfall runoff modeling, which is what I was referring to earlier, there I think there is a lot of evidence showing that at least the current top ML-based systems are better than the current top uh, mechanistic systems or physics-based systems. I, I think that's been shown quite, quite clearly, and we can already see that we can learn a lot from these ML systems. There's been a lot of work done on interpretability of those systems. Frederick Kratzert uh, et al. published some results showing that actually these models, you can buy by probing their neurons, see that they actually keep tabs on different uh, important hydrological variables, uh, like the amount of snow there is in the basin and things like that. So things you would expect, which is nice. So this kind of leads the way to indeed trying to learn from these systems things that might actually improve uh, more physics-based models as well. But there are other problems in hydrology where this is very far from the truth. So for example, if you're doing hydrodynamic modeling, there actually our physical understanding of how water moves across the floodplain is very, very good. So that's a very complex system to try and learn through machine learning and we have differential equations describing that movement incredibly accurately, the St. Fanon equation specifically. And it would be quite silly to try and learn all of that from scratch without using the physics-based modeling that we need. So really, I think the path forward is trying to understand what have we modeled well using the physics? What do we genuinely understand? And there's no reason to replace that with machine learning, but also leaving the room for the flexibility of the model to express the components that we haven't really gotten down. And I think a lot of people in hydrology know what are those aspects that we haven't gotten down. I think it's not a, it's not a new discovery, uh, but how to combine those two, I think that's the, the most interesting question going forward. Fantastic. Great question. Really interesting answer. Excellent. Wonderful. Sela, thank you so much for your time. This has been absolutely fantastic. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. That is it for this episode of Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode.